We're in Nehemiah 1, looking at our series, uh, uh, in our series on the re-life of God's kingdom. Today we'll, uh, we'll be starting in verse 4. Here's the deal, leading up to verse 4, Nehemiah has just heard this terrible news about the, the status and, and the place of God's people in the promised land, uh, their, uh, their real struggles, and as a result, this is his response. Starting in verse 4, Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and, and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are your dispersed be under the further skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Grass withers, flowers fade. Word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Well, you've heard of having bad days. Well, 19-year-old Austin Hatch has endured really a series of very bad years. See, Austin Hatch, as I speak, is a six foot six junior in high school who has been a Division I recruit basketball recruit at places like University of Michigan. And uh, over the last 10 years, his life has been littered by tragedy. In 2003, while riding in a private airplane with his father and his family, uh, with his father being the pilot, the plane crashed. Austin and his father survived. However, his mother, his 11-year-old sister, and his 5-year-old little brother did not make it through the crash. Uh, fast forward to 2011, after a bad year some time back, uh, the 16-year-old Hatch was once again flying with his father in an airplane, and they went through a second plane crash together. This crash this time took the father's life. Hatch himself, uh, the, young, uh, the younger Hatch, was seriously hurt and spent two months in an induced coma to recover. After his recovery this past year, in this past school year, the former basketball standout from Fort Wayne, Indiana, moved to Los Angeles to live with his uncle and to try and resurrect his basketball career at Loyola High School in Los Angeles. 
He made the basketball team this past fall, and yet uh, he was very limited in what he could do in his play. Everyone wondered how Austin Hatch would respond to the series of bad years that he really had. And that, guys, that's exactly what we find here in Nehemiah chapter 1, where we find the people of God in Nehemiah struggling with bad years. Nehemiah has heard the news that the people of God in his homeland, in, in Jerusalem in particular, had a series of really bad years, if you will, poverty, um, oppression. Uh, their city was in, in uh, disrepair. And we have to wonder upon hearing this, how will, um, how will Nehemiah respond to what he hears about the people? How does he involve God in the case of hearing bad news? Well, let's think about uh, Nehemiah's story in and of itself. And let's return to what we've been talking about as we get to this question. And the first thing you have to remember is Nehemiah lived in a place called Persia around 445 B.C. Uh, that is about 500 years before Christ came. It even pinpoints in verse 1 of our text where he lived in Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. And that was uh, over in here is where you'd find Susa. Right there it is. And uh, this is what we now call Iran. And as he was living there, uh, he, he, we find out more about him. He lives at that time in the most powerful country in the world. It'd be akin to America now, being the superpower of the world. He lived in it in that time as well, in Persia. And not only that, we found out in verse 11 of our text that he's the cupbearer for the king. And the cupbearer for the king, in this case, uh, was uh, Artaxerxes. He was the man who made sure Artaxerxes didn't drink poison whenever he had a drink of wine or water of some sort. In other words, Nehemiah was a man of serious stature, uh, serious place and influence in this point of society, even in the most powerful nation of the world. So you've got to wonder, would he be just content with that? The comfort, the pleasures of just being in the most powerful place in the world. Well, the historic account that we read last week tells us that Jews came from Judah and told Nehemiah about all that was going on amidst God's people who had returned from the exile to live in Jerusalem. Remember now, 150 years earlier, God had kicked the Jews out of the promised land uh, as a consequence of their ongoing disobedience and idolatry for hundreds of years and despite many warnings from the prophets. And in the process, the Babylonians came in and God used, of all people, a pagan nation to kick God's people out of the land. Now, about 40 years later, uh, the Persian Empire, a guy named Cyrus the Great, actually conquered Babel the Babylonian Empire. And now the Persian Empire was the new power on the block, if you will. Cyrus the Great came up with this extraordinary policy that we take for granted in our days here in America, he came up with a freedom of religion policy. Back in those days, if 
you, uh, if the if the king in charge of your empire that you lived in was of some religion, you would convert to that religion, or they would force it on you. But in Cyrus's case, he said, "No, no, no, we're not going to do that anymore. You all go back to your homes after you've been exiled and go start up your religion and worship your God, and we will take care of you in that way." So, sure enough, that's what he did. I lost my notes. Dave, you're the man. I appreciate that. So he does this, and as he does it, he actually um, hears this news about what's going on with the people of God, and he gets depressed. He's heard that the people are in the city of Jerusalem and that their city has turned into what effectively is like Detroit in our time. A city abandoned, left uh, for disrepair. It was in serious trouble. Now, how does Nehemiah respond to this? Well, last week we learned that he responds. He responded with tears, with lament. It even says in our text, in verse 4, that he wept about this and mourned for days and continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, I'm not going to go into it again this week. Remember, we talked about how lament is something we don't do a lot in our day. Our, our kind of M.O. as Americans, especially as us American men, is uh, just suck it up and get on with it. But here is a man of man's and who is on the, the, if you will, the cabinet of the king of kings in that time. And he is lamenting. He's weeping. But that's not all he's doing. Did you notice what else he's doing in our text in verse four? It says he continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, he starts to pray. This is the next thing he does that Nehemiah clearly responds with in the face of bad news. He prays. He prays. Now, there are four aspects of prayer we find in this text today uh, that Nehemiah does. First, he, re- he rediscovers prayer. Next, he, he uh, repents in prayer. Next, he remembers in prayer. And then he requests in prayer. And this is a part of the real life that Nehemiah is living as a follower of the one true God in his time. First, he rediscovers prayer. And that shows up in our text in verses 5 and 6. Notice how he starts to pray. He says, I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel. What do we want to highlight about this? Well, I would submit to you that What probably is happening here is Nehemiah is rediscovering prayer. Now, I'm not saying he stopped praying as a man of God. He clearly shows the evidence that before we get to this point. But there is something that changes about the quality and the quantity of his prayer in our text. First, he says this. He prays for a long time. A long time. Derek Kidner says that according to verse 1... Nehemiah heard the news about Jerusalem all around November, December, that month that it talks about in this text of Chislev. But he does not approach the king, which we're going to see later on, until later in the spring, about six months later. In other words, 
For months, Nehemiah prays about this issue. It's broken his heart so much. It says even in our text that he prayed for days. He prayed day and night for the people of Israel. The implication is simply this. Something is so burdensome on his heart about life, and particularly about life for his people, that he laments for them in prayer for a long period of time. Or to use the language of 1 Thessalonians 5, he prays without ceasing. How about you? When your heart aches about something, when you're really disappointed by life or thrown a curveball, something is not the way it's supposed to be in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your career, how do you respond? What do you do? What does that look like emotionally and spiritually for you? Do you lament by praying over that ache? And are you even willing to do it for months? Now, somebody will say, wait a minute now. Are you saying we have to be sad all the time? No, 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 no. No, these are just seasons that I'm suggesting. But if you think about the very nature of things like the Psalms, they are, in many cases, laments. Most of the Psalms, uh, uh, if you will, are laments. How long, O Lord? You hear this evocative, emotional language coming out of them. And the implication is this, that in the Psalms, the psalmist wrote them as prayers originally and then started to sing them. And if you've ever written a song or even written poetry, you repeat it again and again to get it down. The implication being that the Psalms that we read in our text that were sung and were written for songs were used again and again and again as refrains of lament in many cases. What's the implication for us? When you feel the ache, don't waste the sorrow. Don't waste the sorrow. Rediscover prayer in your life and rediscover how to pray even in pain. Second way that that, um, Nehemiah rediscovers prayer is he prays scripture in our text. Over and again throughout verses 5 through 11, he has these little phrases and clauses that come from Deuteronomy, from Exodus, from all over the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch. And here's what that means. When he was lamenting in prayer, he was also reading the Word of God. He was reading it for months. He was internalizing it, even in prayer, so that when he prayed, he was praying Scripture. Is your prayer life defunct, dead, ho-hum, boring? Read the Word of God and start praying it. Read the Word of God and start praying the very phrases that pop in the power of the Spirit in your heart. God will meet you in those prayers as you do. In fact, I would suggest, and this is something I will be working on over the next few weeks in my prayer time with the Lord on all my vacation, is uh, there's an old way of praying that, um, that the saints of old, even Reformed saints of old, like Calvin, called Lectio Divina. And it would go like this. Uh, you treat the Word of God like you're eating a fine meal. First, you take a bite of Scripture by reading Scripture. Then... You chew on it with meditation, like what is God saying about what this means in his time and place and what connection that has for me. 
Then you savor the essence of the gospel that comes in prayer. And then you digest like food the word of God in quiet contemplation, considering who God is, who his Christ is, and what he's done for you, and what that means for how we live our lives. If we, if we took 15 minutes a day to ingest the word of God, even pray over it, at, like we would eating a fine meal, it would change our lives. Amen. Third way Nehemiah rediscovers prayer was he got to know God in our text. And he got to know it again through word and prayer. Look at his address of God in verse 5. He calls God the Lord. That's Yahweh, the great I am, the one who has always been, always will be, who's the eternal present. The God who is sovereign over all things and bigger than we could ever even come close to imagining. He calls him the God of heaven. Now, that's a unique term used for this particular God amidst a bunch of gods in the Persian Empire that time. But it was used of God in the sense that he is above all gods. He's above all gods living in heaven in the sense that he is the one true and living God. Engaged with mankind, engaged with the world, and far outstanding above and beyond the other gods of this world. He calls God a great God. A great God in the sense that, again, he is um, superior, infinitely superior as the one living God over all the dead gods. And then he calls him the awesome, or as some translations say, the terrible God. Don't be afraid of the terrible God. It is a sense that he is holy and that if we are in his presence and even come close to him in any real way, we're going to hit the deck. Because his utter purity and glory is overwhelming when you encounter it. But notice how he follows up by talking about how God is the God who keeps his covenant and his steadfast love with his people. He goes from this awesome picture of the transcendent God to the very personal God who is engaged with us in covenant. Remember, in the ancient Near East, if you said, how do you describe uh, how you interact with God? They wouldn't say I have a personal relationship with Yahweh, the one true God. They would say, I am in covenant with God. Now, it's true that covenant is personal relationship. Absolutely. But that's what he's saying. There's a, a personal connection with this God. You see what he's doing here? He's praying in a way that he's knowing God. And he's engaging him by recognizing who he is in his life. That's what we're called to do when we pray. Is seek to know God. And I might even start with this idea that we start with God. Sometimes when we pray, our prayers start with us. That's not all bad. It shows up even in the Psalms. But here's the thing. Normally you want to pray the rhythm of the Lord's Prayer, which starts out like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then it goes to... Give us this day our daily bread. Give me what I need. Do you notice the rhythm of the prayer? It starts with God first. It's going to him thinking, I need to make my reference for reality. God himself, not me. So I start with him. And in the midst of pain, that's really crucial. 
In the midst of lamentable news, it's really crucial. You go to God and you say, you're the one who has all reality in you. You are the one who is in control of even the most painful things that are going on. The beauty of what Nehemiah is praying here is he's starting with God and how he prays. And the beauty of that is he is finding life in the process. So, what does Nehemiah do to rediscover prayer? Well, he, he, uh, he rediscovers prayer by months of aching, by months of scouring the Word of God, and by seeking God first in his prayer. But he's not done praying. According to our text here in verses 6 through 7, he tells us even more, and it's just a surprising thing in our text. Look at this with me. He prays this, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant. I love when um, the prayers and the Psalms of Scripture say that. You know what they're saying there, right? They're saying, listen to me, God. I desperately need you. But he's not done. He tells us why. Uh, He goes on to say, I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Last week, we established that the biblical way to pray is to pray even with a repentant heart. That's what the mourning and the fasting was all about as Nehemiah prayed and And here he's praying a repentant prayer. And it is a, a sorrow that he is expressing. A sorrow, if you will, over how God is offended by our sin personally. And how things are not the way they're supposed to be, even in a culture amidst a people. But here Nehemiah goes to another place. He not only expresses sorrow, he expresses confession. He confesses his sin. He verbally admits to much of what, of how he has caused the pain and how people have caused the pain and contributed to the troubles that they were experiencing. And what are the troubles that they, the things they had contributed with? Well, they broke the commandments, the ones we said earlier. They didn't love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They didn't love their neighbor as themselves. They didn't make God their only God. You shall have no other gods before me, remember, is stated positively, you shall have me alone as God. They didn't do it. As a result, Nehemiah explains how they led corrupted lives. And corruption being that which takes the good gifts of God. And turns them into wicked things. Now let's sit with that for a second. Probably our greatest struggle in middle class suburban America is we're usually full of good people, so to speak. But more often than not, what we we think about is at least I'm not murdering people, doing drugs, keep going on and on and on. We're thinking, hey, I'm not a bad person. I don't do all that stuff. But here's the thing. In God's eyes, it's not just the evil things that we can do that are very harmful and dangerous, even in families' lives, as many of you may have encountered. No, no. What's the problem is corruption. Taking good things like family, like marriage, like church, 
like um, job and career and gifts and making them ultimate things. That's what corruption is. When you take a good thing and use it for your own glory rather than ultimately the honor and glory of God. Nehemiah readily admits and laments that his people had done that very thing. And just so you know, they took money and politics and they tried to find their life in it, especially in Judah. The real heart of God's law, though, is to develop a love for him. A love for he and his kingdom that even shows up in a love for his people. That's what you see in Nehemiah here. As he repents, he's expressing love for his people. What keeps us from loving? I would submit to you it's worldliness. Worldliness. Let me remind you our working definition of worldliness. Worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and virtue look strange. Worldliness is anything that makes sin look, ver- uh, look normal and virtue look strange. And the thing about worldliness that's so enticing is it gives you instant vet gratification. The thing about seeking God in prayer is that God is often slow to respond. Very slow to answer our prayers. And we get tired of waiting. That's what happened to God's people in, in, in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. They got tired of waiting on God. They wanted life on their own terms rather than thy will be done in my life as it is in heaven. So what can we do to get out of repentance? I mean, get out of, get out of repentance. Huh? That's a good one. What do we do? Oh, there's a Freudian slip, you know. What can we do to get out of worldliness? Well, the answer is repentance. Repentance is the real art of turning as, as you're walking down a certain path, usually the wide path that Jesus talks about, turning and going down a different path, a narrow path like Jesus talks about. And what is it repentance looks like? Well, Fundamentally, it is the turning, but there's a lot more to repentance. And our, our friend Thomas Watson has helped us by giving us a real picture of what repentance looks like in prayer and with the word on a regular basis. So what are the marks of true repentance that Thomas Watson uh, tells us? Well, the first thing is this true repentance, uh, a, a true a le- layer of repentance, if you will, is that you see sin. You see sin. In the sense that you see it for what it is through the eyes of God and what is true according to God. Now, the the bypass of repentance that we often come up with is we deny sin or we minimize it. Now, denial is one of my favorite states to visit. Uh, And it goes like this. Well, that's not sin. What are you talking about? That's not an issue. Minimizing is, oh, it's not that bad. The point is, with sin, it is that bad, as we prayed earlier. It is that offensive to God, and it undermines relationship in a community and even with the lost. Next, next uh, layer, if you will, of repentance is sorrow for sin. Sorrow in the sense that I have offended the God of the universe. What have I done? 
What have I done? I have hurt other people. What have I done? The bypass are tears for the pain and the trouble. This is what 2 Corinthians 7 is false repentance and not true repentance in the sense that we're sad because we're experiencing hardship consequences due to our foolishness. That's not real repentance. What's true repentance? The next layer, confession of sin. Hey, what do you know? We see it here with our man, uh, Nehemiah. I did this. Did you hear the language of this? It's incredible. He said, I did this along with my family. He said, those dirty, rotten, sinful Israelites, I'm one of them. And so is my family. He owns it himself. I did this. I'm responsible. The opposite of confession would be an excuse. Well, if you only knew where I grew up, if you only knew what, what circumstances I was in and why I did that, well, then, I mean, you wouldn't blame me, right? Or even more and more in our day is the celebration of sin. Like you turn on a Jerry Springer or things like that where it's like, oh, I did this, I did you wrong in our marriage because you deserved it. And everybody's screaming, Yahoo! Are you serious? Damaged is poured on to damage that way. Next, shame for sin. Shame for sin would be the feeling that there's a light on me and I feel naked and seen by God. You feel the sense of exposure like God sees you. I'll tell you, this stage is a hard one because you usually feel exposed like everybody sees you if you're really in a true repentant state. The other bypass of repentance would be blame shifting or comparison. Blame shifting being, well, okay, um, well, they're the ones who really have the problem. Or uh, a comparison would be, well, okay, so my sin is an issue, but at least I'm not as bad as they are. False repentance again. Here's true repentance. Hatred of sin. It's a point. You get to the point in this process where you're like, I really don't like what I do and who I am when I do this. I don't want to do this anymore. This is gross. Whereas in our day, with guilt on our conscience because of shame, we tend to hate ourselves. Bad Christian. Bad, bad, bad Christian. We beat ourselves up. You should be better than this. You should. What's the matter with you? Final. True, true repentance is you actually literally in all of this make a, a heart and behavior turn and follow Jesus in new obedience. That's what real repentance is about. The bypass of it is self-writing pretense. I don't know what the problem is. I'm, a, I'm going to church. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm doing all these things. And we recount our self-righteous deeds, realizing they're not tainted by the deepest parts of our sin. Nehemiah is praying with repentance in his heart. With God's holy grace working in him. That he might live a very different way. And folks, the way to live this life 
is to once again anew get in the Word and to pray with God. Even your honest thoughts as you read Scripture. How often do you really pray your honest thoughts? How often do you pray and say, Lord, I just read this promise in Scripture. I'm struggling to believe it right now. Help me in my unbelief. Help me, Lord. This is the kind of stuff Jesus calls us to. It's really an obedience that comes by faith. A turning that embraces Christ because he embraced us first. This is what repentant prayer looks like. And it's the thing that where it's the place where I think we're really changed. Have you ever thought, man, I've got this thing in my life that I cannot change? No matter what I do, even trying to read Bible studies and all this stuff, it doesn't matter. I cannot change. You know why? It's because you don't pray. You don't pray with this kind of heart prayer that says, I need you desperately. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. There is a third thing that um, Nehemiah goes on to express in this prayer today. And it's he, he remembers in verses 8 and 9, really ask God to remember what God has done. Look at verse 8 with me. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Well, that's exactly what God did. After hundreds of years of idolatry and sin and resistance against God, forsaking him, God finally kicked them out of the land and scattered them all around the Babylonian empire. Now it was the Persian empire at this time with Nehemiah. But look at what he goes to next. He says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you, you're, dis, you're dispersed be under the farther skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen. Here's the wonder of what he's saying in this text. What he's saying is, I am going to rely on the promise of God to give me hope. That even though God has scattered us and judged us in a temporal sense in this life, he will gather our people again. He promised it as we return to him in repentance. That's what returning is, this language of repentance and change. The wonder of what he says here is that the remembering gives us hope. In fact, I would submit to you that if you struggle with hope, that your despair is driven by your circumstance. Your despair is driven by the hardship that Nehemiah was staring in the face, hearing about what was going on in Jerusalem. But the hope he had was based on God's promise. Do you want to have hope? You go back to God's promise. You get back in Scripture and you pray over those promises. Lord, convince me this is true. Change my heart for you. Now, someone would read this text, and it would be easy to read this text and say, is this text saying that they're saved by works? If they just return and do what they're supposed to do, then I will have mercy on them. Well, the answer would be, no, he's not saying we are saved by works, and neither were the people of God in that time as well. In the New Testament and the Old Testament, all the people were always saved, all, the, all of God's true people were saved by grace through faith in the coming Christ. We look back at the Christ who has come. What he is saying is this. When you see how the returning and the language of obedience are put together, he's saying that real repentance and faith 
always has the result, the evidence of obedience. The evidence of obedience to the law of keeping God's commands. The idea being this, as you are experience the forgiveness of God for disobedience, and as you enjoy grace and taste it, and it's like sweet aroma in your, in your, in your nose, then you have this desire to go and to obey because you've tasted love. Once you've been loved by God in the return, then you go out in love. It's just inevitable the way the rhythm of Scripture speaks. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It was Christ who got it right for us. It was Christ who bled and died on a cross, a Roman gibbet 2,000 years ago for people who don't obey the law and don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and don't make God first in prayer. Don't you see? God makes the initiative towards you and me so we can love Him back because He first loved us. God redeems us. And he redeems us, as it says in our text, not only from a life of sin, but to a new life of following him in living relationship with him. The wonder of what Nehemiah is saying in our text today is that he is praying for God's people. He's praying for God's people like Moses did with the golden calf episode. When God was ready to judge the people of God for worshiping the golden calf, he interceded for them. So, Nehemiah is interceding for God's people that God would forgive them today. What's that got to do with you and me today? Well, it's got to do it in this way. Jesus is our Nehemiah. Jesus is praying for us at the right hand of God the Father right now. He's praying that you and I would rediscover prayer and renewed fellowship with God, seeking Him even with the ache that we have inside, that we see in a broken world. He's he's calling us to pray, even with repentant prayer, when that ache shows up in our own sin, in the sin of us as a people. Jesus is praying that we would repent and become disenculturated from this world. That we would live in such a way that the gospel would go out where it isn't. I don't know why we don't reach out. I was reading this article about um, Augustine's prayers. And he says this very interesting thing about praying. And he says, before you ever get to the how and the what of prayer, there's one thing. You have to keep in mind, the person who's seeking God in prayer has to be a certain person. And you know what the certain person is? It's the person who's desolate to the world. Desolate to the world. That is, they are so weary of trying the gods of this world, of trying the good and the evil things of this world, that they know that their only hope is in the one God who can redeem them. You want to know why we don't pray is because we're in love with the world. We'd much rather engage, and in my case, in distraction with trivial sports information online. Nothing wrong with trivial sports information like what the running backs for Panthers are doing these days. But we run to it too quickly instead of running to God.
When you face trouble, you have to be desolate to the world knowing the answer is not here. It's in a Christ who is ruling at the right hand of God the Father right now. And you pray to him knowing that he is praying for you. That is real hope for us in the gospel. But there's one final request in our text today. In our last verse, in verse 11, it says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. There he is, that kind of, I'm desperate, listen to me, Lord. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of man. I never thought I'd preach this, ever. But you can pray for success. You can pray for success. Ah. But first, you start with God in your prayer. What does he want? Thy will be done. Then you go to prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. A repentant prayer. You're even remembering the promise of God in Scripture and grounding your prayers for success in what Scripture says. Not exactly everything we want. And then, then you pray for success. In this case, Nehemiah is praying for success with the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, the superpower lord himself. He wants success with him and the request he's going to make that you're going to look at in the next few weeks. Notice this. Nehemiah is praying to the sovereign king of kings, God, Yahweh, Jesus, the Lord. And he's praying, recognizing that God is the one who's really in control of all things, not Artaxerxes. He's just a man. He has power in worldly structures, even God-given power in worldly structures, but he's just a man. When he's facing this hardship that's going on with his people, he's praying to the sovereign God who has the answer and the power to hear. He seeks no one else in the process. So how should we respond to a series of bad days or bad years? Rediscover prayer with the sovereign God. Repent in prayer to the God who is in covenant love with you and is in, infinitely more committed to you than you are to him. Remember God's promise who speaks his word and things happen in his time. And request success for God's kingdom to advance in your life, in your family's life, in your career. Yes, in the church. In conclusion. I began our time talking about a young basketball player named Austin Hatch. He survived not one, but two plane crashes that took all of his family away from him. Well, this past January, Hatch finally got his shot. He returned to the court during a game. It was the fourth quarter. It was the first game in years that he had played. He entered for Loyola High School during that fourth quarter, and his first shot was a drained three-pointer. He popped it. His, his teammates went nuts. They all rushed the court after he made it, 
Ref had to call a, per, uh, excuse me, a technical foul. The place was going bananas over him making the shot. After the game, his coach, uh, Adams, uh, was asked what he thought about the whole thing. And he said, you know what? That was the best technical foul I've ever experienced in my life. He said, and I quote, that kid taught me something uh, that is true for, for me and for everybody else. Nothing is impossible. And he went on to say, it was a truly spiritual moment. We might add that there is a sovereign God who is in control of culture, your life, everything there is. And he is a loving God engaged with you. And he is eager to hear from you in prayer. Nothing is impossible for the God you go to, the biblical God you go to in prayer. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we come to you recognizing you are the God who is in control of all things. You are the God who holds our life in your hands. You love us deeply, passionately. You have never given up on us and pursued us even with Christ's death on the cross. So we give ourselves to you and pray for this body, for our lives, for our personal walks with you. That you would give us a longing to pray to you again. That you would give us hope in the face of bad days and bad years to seek your face first because you are our Savior. There is no other. We pray for this church, Lord, that you would bring new life here. And that you would continue to stir us to reach beyond these walls to a mission field around the world and in our backyard, those who don't know you. Glory to you, Lord Christ, that you are gathering your people and that you're building a holy city with a holy people. Make us more holy as we seek you in word and in prayer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.